0: is revival, and I must say that for the church here in the United States today, I think that this is a a very, very important topic. We have many churches, evangelical churches, that are, are orthodox in their doctrine, and yet they are dead or lethargic in their life. Those churches need revival. We have many churches that are big and prosperous, but they are shallow in their doctrine and shallow in their Christian life. And those churches really need revival. Uh, There are many churches today which are historically evangelical, but they are drifting in some important, even essential doctrines of the faith. There There are some churches where they have given up the doctrine of eternal punishment. There are some churches that are questioning the doctrine of justification by faith and saying that the Reformers really had it wrong. And those churches need revival. Our society has less and less Christian influence today and more and more... Christians are under attack. We live in a society that needs another great awakening. We're living in a society that needs a revival. When I look at the history of the church and what God did in Europe at the time of the Reformation, and when I see what happened in the 1700s under Jonathan Edwards and George Whitefield, and then if you go to right around the beginning of the 19th century, right around uh, 1800, um, there was a, a great work of God at all of these times. And, and I read these and I cry out, God, why not? Why not today? Why not among us? Give us. That kind of awakening where many people get serious about spiritual things, are convicted of their sins, and are concerned about their eternal destiny, and want to know you as a true Savior. Now, the topic that I have been given is the topic of understanding God's sovereignty in true revival. Now, before I turn to the Scripture uh, on this particular subject, let me say something about my own testimony because I think it has a bearing uh, on this particular subject. The nearest thing that in my light that I have come to in my life to what I would call a a revival was what happened when I was in New Jersey in high school uh, It was this period of my life when i came to know the lord now what i am calling a a revival i probably would call a mini, mini revival because it was on a local level and it, it was not it was not something that that swept the country and uh but it was something very remarkable that god did in uh, my particular area and it touched my life back in uh in, in those days, I had grown up in a, in a liberal Presbyterian church. Now, in that church, I did not hear the gospel. And I did not come to know Christ. I actually did get many good things from that liberal church, if you would believe it. But I did not, I did not really hear the most important thing, which was how to find salvation in Jesus Christ. In 1957, now some of you can calculate, you can figure out how old I am because of that. But in 1957, uh, Billy Graham came to New York City and he was in Madison Square Garden for the entire summer. And this led to a remarkable work of God. In my high school, there was one 15-year-old boy who began inviting his friends to come to those meetings and uh, at the end of the summer, there were, there were near 60 or 70 in my high school who had made professions of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I wasn't one of them, but they came back to school carrying their Bibles and they were witnessing, and uh, it was through their witness that about a year later, I came to know the Lord. Now I didn't realize at that time that when I came into that group of young people, it was a it was a very very unusual and remarkable group. Here you had uh, young people, high school students, and they were serious about spiritual things. They were serious about godly living. They were serious about studying the Bible. They got me not only learning verses and reading the Bible, they got me reading Bible commentaries as a high school student. And so I read uh, William R. Newell's commentaries on Romans and Hebrews and Revelation and A.W. And, uh, Pink on uh, John and the life of David and some of these great, great works that just had, a, had a, an impact in my, in my, in my spiritual life. Uh, One of the keys, one of the keys to that experience and that work of God was a couple in New Jersey who were in their 30s at the time. Their name was uh, Gene and George Dick, and all of you who are from that area will know them. But uh, their lives were consumed with working with us teenagers. Um, We would stop by their house seven days a week. (laughs) Uh, We would sit and talk about spiritual things with them for hours. And their lives were totally given over to the Lord. I don't think that they had any time for themselves. (laughs) Now, this, this work... This work of God really continued for about four or five years. Eventually, those that were in the group went off to to college and moved away. And there were different young people in the group. There were eventually different leaders in the group. And I'd say that another five or so years went by and the elders in the assembly began to be concerned about the young people because they weren't serious about spiritual things. They were uh, drifting off into the world. And the elders were concerned and they asked, what can we do? What can we do to change things? And so they remembered. Things were so different when we had that that former couple leading the young people. So let's bring them back. And so they brought them back. And they wanted to repeat The experience that had taken place in our group when so many were serious about spiritual things. But when they brought them back, nothing happened. Uh, They had the same leaders, they had the same activities, they had the same kinds of Bible studies, but nothing really changed and i think that that illustrates the lesson that we are trying to get across trying to get across this morning revival is the work of god it is not the work of man now i want to see a couple of verses in first corinthians chapter 3 that show us this truth starting in verse 5 of first corinthians chapter 3 paul says Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither is he who plants anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Now, Paul is saying here, salvation is the work of God. In chapters one and four, one to four of 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with the subject of divisions in the church, in the church at Corinth, and it it, it happened there that many of the Corinthian Christians were siding up alongside of their favorite Re- uh, leader, You notice he says in, in verse 4, some were coming and saying, you know what, I, I am a Paul. And another was saying, I really, I really follow Apollos. If you go back to chapter, uh, chapter 1, some were saying, I follow Cephas or, or Peter. And so Paul insists, and he makes this point very strongly, salvation is not the work of men. Salvation is the work of God. What are Apollos and Paul? He says, they're just servants. Yes, God used them to bring the gospel to you. But it was God who brought the salvation. Salvation is the work of God. Verses 6 and 7, I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. When he talks about planting and watering, he is using the figure of a a farmer. Now what can a farmer do? A farmer can put the seed in the ground. He uh, He can cultivate the ground. He can put water on that seed. Can the farmer make that seed grow? That's the work of the Creator. That is the work of God. Now, Paul is saying this is not only true in the natural world. It is also true in the spiritual world. Salvation is the work of God. Now, turn back to the previous chapter, chapter 2, and and look at how this works out in Paul's own preaching. Verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2. He says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ Christ, and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of men's, of men's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, how did Paul preach? Do you notice how he describes his preaching in verse 1? He says it was not with brilliance of speech. And he says it was not with superiority of wisdom. (laughs) And then he says in verse 3 that when he was there and when he was preaching, he came in weakness and fear and trembling. What was his message? What was his message? Verse 2. It was the message of the cross. Now, in the previous chapter, in chapter 1, he said that message, that message is a message that is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. Now, look at Paul's preaching as he describes it here. Does that sound like a formula for success? Uh, we, want, we want revival in our church. And so uh, we write the Apostle Paul. And Paul, we say, Paul, we are thinking about having you come and preach. So would you send us your resume and uh, tell us what your plans and what your strategy would be for bringing revival to our church. And uh, we get back and it says that Paul is not very eloquent and uh, he is not going to say anything out of the ordinary. He's just going to tell of Jesus and His death and and His crucifixion. And in fact Paul has to admit that in the last six places where he has preached he has met with a lot of opposition and uh, and conflict I'm not sure whether we would not hesitate to invite the apostle Paul to come and preach in our assembly <laughs> Now what what is required Do you notice in 1 Corinthians 2, four, he says uh, what is required what is required is not persuasive words of human wisdom. What is required is the demonstration of the Spirit and power. That is what is needed. Salvation is the work of God. Anything else is just the work of men. And anything that is just the work of men will not stand and will not have a lasting effect. Notice in verse 5, he says, your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, what does that mean for us? We want revival. So, we decide that we will do what many churches do. We will have some special meetings. Now, in our church, we have a, a, a pulpit committee that has some very, very good connections. And so, for the first week of meetings, we are able to secure the services of the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people came to know the Lord. And then for our second week of meetings, we have, we have Apollos. And there is no more eloquent and gifted speaker than Apollos. And in our university town, where we have a lot of intellectuals, Apollos will really go over, over well. And then for our third week of preaching, we are going to have the, the Apostle Paul himself. Everywhere he has gone, new churches... New churches have been have, have been started. Now what is what does Scripture say? It says that you can get the most powerful and you can get the most eloquent and you can get the most experienced preachers that exist, and still there is no guarantee of success. You know, actually scripture is much, much Stronger than that. Scripture says no man can bring revival. No man can bring revival. No man can bring a single sinner to Christ. No man can give salvation to anyone. Salvation is the work of God. Now, let me give three reasons why, why revival must be the sovereign work of God. The first lesson here is found in our chapter in First Corinthians chapter two and verse fourteen. Paul is saying is that uh, the natural man, the unbeliever, has absolutely no ability even to understand spiritual truth. Look at 1 Corinthians 2.14, he says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Now, by the natural man, Paul is referring to the unbeliever. That word, natural man, is found uh, also in the, in the little book of Jude, uh, verse 19. And Jude describes that person, that natural man, he says, He does not have the Spirit. And Paul says in Romans 8, if, if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he doesn't belong to Christ. So we're talking about here an unbeliever in 1 Corinthians 2.14. And Paul says here that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, uh, for they are foolishness to him, neither can he know them because they are Spiritually discerned. So, when Paul says the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, he can't know them, he's not talking about knowing intellectually. He's not talking about intellectual understanding. You can see that numerous times in the life of Christ. In John 10 and verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. What was the response to that message? It says, in the next verse, the Jews took up stones to stone him. Why? They understood what he was saying. They understood that he was claiming to be uh, divine. When he asked them, uh, why? They said, uh, "Why are you trying to stone me?" They said, "Because you being a man are making yourself to be God." They understood his claim, but they rejected it. And when it says the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God, it means the word receive means to welcome. He doesn't he, he may understand what 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 Scripture is saying, but he doesn't welcome it as truth. As far as he is concerned, it is is foolishness. And when it says, neither can he know them, the word know is the word to know experientially. The unbeliever does not know these, these truths in his experience as truth. He does not have the spiritual discernment to see it as truth. Now what Paul is saying here, he says in a number of other places. He says in Romans chapter three and verse eleven, there is no there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. Now in, in in that that verse, this is a very, very strong statement. It follows the verse that says that there is none who is righteous. No, not one. That's absolute. There is no one who is righteous. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. That's a puzzling statement, isn't it? There is no one who seeks after God. We've all known people, unbelievers, who have been seeking after God. Haven't we? We've known that in our own experience. At the end of the 19th century, a British author, F.W. Farrar, wrote a book entitled Seekers After God. And it became a bestseller. And uh, it was a very popular book. It was in in great demand. And there was a bookseller in the United States that had many, many requests for this book. And he couldn't get any copies. And so he wrote to... uh, uh, he sent a, a a telegram to some book dealers in in New York City asking them to ship a number of copies of this book Seekers After God after a while a telegram came back and he sa- and, and and it simply said no seekers after god in New York try Philadelphia <laughs> I said, we know people who have been seeking after God. What is that? What does what this verse in Romans, Romans tell us? Paul is saying in Romans 3 that no one seeks after God by himself. When we seek after God, it's not because we have taken the initiative to seek after God. It is because God has taken the initiative to seek after us. If anyone is seeking after God it is because God is seeking and drawing that person to himself in fact the lord jesus said in john chapter 6 in verse 44 no one can come to me unless the father draws him what these verses are saying is that is that sin has affected the mind and the will and the desires of man so that man by himself, left by himself, will always reject the gospel. Now Paul, Paul presents this inability of man to respond to the things of God is a fact. That's the first reason why salvation must be the work of God. Now, Paul explains why man is, is unable in, in, in two other ways. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 3, he says that the natural man is dead in his trespasses and sins. Uh, he says, before you were saved, verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He says in verse 3, you were by nature Children of wrath. And then in verse 5, he says, When we were dead in our transgressions, it was God who made us alive. I see a lot of preachers here. Have you ever preached in a funeral home? Have you? How many conversions have you had from those who were lying in the casket? Uh, those who are dead physically cannot hear or respond to the gospel. Paul is saying that those who are dead spiritually cannot hear or respond to the gospel. It requires a supernatural work of God. Now, I I want to pause here and... uh, I want to emphasize that what I am saying is is general evangelical truth that has been agreed on by by Bible-believing Christians over the centuries. This is not Calvinism versus Arminianism. This is something that both Calvinists and Arminians have historically agreed upon. Uh, John Wesley An Arminian emphasized that the natural man is spiritually dead and unable to make the slightest move toward God. He said, because of the fall, sinners left to themselves stand utterly hopeless and helpless before God. Salvation can only occur if God radically, powerfully, and graciously invades the human heart. Only as God opens blind eyes, stirs the desire, and loosens the grip of sin, can saving faith follow. That's what Bible-believing Christians have historically agreed. And that is why the natural man cannot understand spiritual truth and rejects it. And there's another reason why the natural man rejects spiritual truth. And that is, there is a spiritual warfare in which Satan is active and is active in keeping the natural man in his natural state. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 3 and 4. He says, uh, if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan blinds men. He wants to keep them in darkness. Christ is the light of the world. But what good is light for a person who is totally Blind. It is only God who can shine in the hearts of those who are blind and in spiritual darkness. It is only He who can open their eyes to see. And that's what He does. That's what Paul says in verse six, Second Corinthians 4, 6. He says, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Why do we see the light? Because God has opened our eyes. And without that supernatural work, no one would ever turn to Christ. Charles Wesley expressed that truth in his great hymn, And Can It Be? You remember that? Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeons flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. There are two things that are going to keep the natural man from understanding and welcoming and receiving the truth of the gospel. His own deadness spiritually and his blindness in the activity of Satan in keeping him in that that darkness. That is why salvation and revival must be the supernatural sovereign work of God. Now, let me take another tact here. Because revival is the sovereign work of God, does not mean that we have no place and no responsibility in in this work. Go back to our verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6. What does it say? Yes, it says God gave the increase. But it also said Paul planted and Apollos watered. And then it says in verse 5, Who is Paul? Who is Apollon's? He says, servants through whom you believed. God uses instruments in bringing men and women to salvation. He uses means. And the means are us. Are us. Three things that we should be doing. If we want to see revival, the means that God uses in bringing people to salvation is the gospel, is the gospel. In Romans 10, Paul says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But then he says, but how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard. And how shall they hear without a preacher? Maybe one of the reasons we aren't seeing revival is that we aren't preaching the gospel in the way we should. When I was a young Christian, the, uh, the assemblies were very evangelistic. They would hold special gospel campaigns. They would have Sunday evening evening gospel services. Christians would invite their friends and their neighbors to those meetings to hear the gospel. Now today, that method of evangelism is not working in most sections of of our country. And we have not adapted to any different means of evangelism to bring people to hear the gospel. How much, how much one-on-one evangelism are we doing today? Uh, how much personal evangelism where we share the gospel with our, with our friends and our neighbors? We believe in a supernatural God, but I don't know of a single person who has come to know the Lord the way the Apostle Paul did. <laughs> where God intervened. Uh, Christ spoke to him from heaven. Everybody that I know who has come to know the Lord, who has has come because of some Christians, in some way, bringing the gospel to them. And so, if we are not presenting the gospel to others, we have no right to ask God for a revival for those who are outside of Christ. Rather, we should be praying that God would would grant a revival in, in, in us. In us. Now, the second thing that we should be doing, the second thing, if, if this is a sovereign work of God, the second thing that we should be doing is praying. And Paul specifically says, Colossians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, he asks the Colossians to devote themselves to prayer. And one of the things that he asks them to pray for in Colossians 4 verses 3 and 4 is that God may open up to us a door for the word. That we may speak for the mystery of Christ for which I also have been imprisoned in order that I might make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. That's a prayer that should be on our hearts. That God would open up to us a door, an opportunity to, to present the word, to speak the gospel. And Lord, as I speak the gospel, we should be praying, Lord, would you open up hearts? And would you open up eyes to see the truth, overcome the enemy so that he might not be successful in keeping people from Christ? Now, there's a third thing that I think that is really required if we want to see revival. And that is what I would call sacrificial effort. Sacrificial effort. Would you like to see revival in your area? If you say no, we'll have an immediate prayer meeting for you. But we all would say yes. Well, Are you willing to give yourself completely to the Lord to see that that revival would would take place? We all admire the Apostle Paul. We all admire the Apostle Paul. I would say that if most of us, if we ever tried to travel on one missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, we would all be John Marks. If you look at 2 Corinthians 11, Paul describes the hardships and the sacrifices that he endured in in his work for Christ. He says he was in constant danger from robbers. He says he was in danger when he was on the sea. He was in danger when he was in the cities. He was frequently thrown in jail. He was often beaten and scourged. Now, we may not... We may not suffer the same kind of, of physical persecution, but how many of us would be willing to sacrifice ourselves even like my youth leaders, Gene and George and George Dick? We would stop by after school on the spur of the moment. Uh, we would stop by on Saturday night just when we didn't have anything. We never, we never called ahead of time. Uh, we never asked whether it was convenient or inconvenient for us to come over to, to their house. They would sit and talk with us for hours. And there was never a hint that they conveyed that we were inconveniencing them. They had a tremendous impact on my life. Why? Because they were willing to sacrifice themselves to serve the Lord. Revival must be the supernatural work of God. And there are times in the history of the church that God has chosen to work in an unusual and and in an extraordinary way. We would like to see that in our churches, but are we sharing the gospel? We can't expect Revival without believers actively presenting the gospel? Are we praying? Really praying? I'd like to think that we are, but I really have my doubts. Are we saying, Lord, my life, my time, my money, everything that I have is yours? Let me tell you a story in conclusion about the wonderful way god can work it's a story that is told by uh, wayne messerly in a book called the god awakening it was in 1970 it was in stratford iowa a town of 750 in the middle of nowhere in central iowa if you wanted to have if you wanted to see a revival I do not think that you could pick a, a place that would be more unlikely uh, than, than Stratford, Iowa. Wayne and his wife Carol weren't close to any assembly. They lived out in the country, and so over a number of years, they broke bread in their own home, basically with their own own family. And they prayed for their friends and they prayed for their neighbors. And when God began to work, they were available. This was back 1970. That was back in the days of the hippie generation. The Vietnam protests, long hair, hard rock music, uh, mind-altering dr- drugs, LSD, everything that the older generation hated. And God took two of those teenage hippies created an unrest in their heart He brought them to a knowledge of the Savior and He brought them to the house of the Messerlis and that was the beginning those two young men very soon were over at the Messerly house every day they were talking with their friends and they were bringing their friends over and the Messerlis Messer fed them, they answered their questions, they opened their Bible, they got involved with Bible study with them, And and, and the group kept growing in their house and in the surrounding towns. Hundreds, hundreds came to know the Lord. Eventually, an assembly of 150 people was established, and it's still going on very, very strongly today. But this was a work of God. This was a work of God. Young people were convicted in their hearts. And they were anxious about their sin. And they were anxious about their eternal destiny. They were hungry for the Word. And the Spirit was working and many were coming to Christ. Wayne in his book says, They came to our home without a gospel campaign, without any effort on our part except prayer and confidence in God's Word that if Christ be lifted up, He would draw all men to Himself. But that also involved a great deal of sacrifice for the, the messengers. They, they sacrificed time. They sacrificed sleep. They sacrificed money. Everything that they had was, was poured into the work of the Lord. They, they had to expand their home. They had to build on <laughs> in order to accommodate all of the of the young people. They were attacked by many in their community. Parents, parents who were content when their kids were at drug parties, but now they were upset because they seemed to be getting involved with this Christian, this Christian cult. But God was doing a remarkable work. Now, wouldn't you like to see something like that where you are? Are we willing to make that kind of commitment in prayer? Are we willing to make that kind of commitment in witnessing? Are we willing to make that kind of commitment in uh, in giving our whole lives and time to the Lord? Salvation, revival, is the work of God. But we are His instruments. And if we are not... Available, we can't expect that God is going to work uh, without us. He's going to work some other place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truths that we have been talking about today, and it gives us confidence to cry out to you uh, that you would would work in a uh, in a great way in our area, to bring men and women to Christ. But at the same time, we cry out to you for salvation of many people around us. We do pray that we might, like Isaiah, say, Lord, here am I. Send me. In Jesus' name.